Father, I pray that you would guide us into all truth. I pray, Father, that you'd show us what truth is and how to discover that truth. This is your world that you've created. Give us the tools to be able to uh, <clears throat> discover these truths and who you are and why we're here. Father, what is our destiny? What is our purpose? God, the, this is all wrapped up in what we're talking about in apologetics. So, God, take us baby steps. Teach us. Speak truth to us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, so I want to start off by asking, why is truth important? Why is why are we even wanting to discover truth? Find the truth in truth. Mm, to find the truth in truth. Okay. I am not going to d- accept that answer. So, yes, hello. <laughs> okay, to understand the world around us. Brooklyn, do you have a comment? It's annoying when somebody lies to us. I just lied to Hosanna that she had no homework, so she got her hopes up, and then to find out the truth that she has a lot of homework. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, what was, so what did you say? It's annoying when someone doesn't tell the truth. So let's say Hosanna believed you, and next time she came into class, she was not prepared. She is annoyed, but tell me why she's annoyed. Why is she annoyed? Because she took just my word. Okay, but there's more to it than that. Why is she annoyed? Because now I'm behind on school. You're behind on school, and that's the consequences of believing something that's not true. Okay. Truth, listen to this uh, class, write this down. Truth has consequences. Lies have consequences. Now, not all truth or all lies have consequences. I'm not saying that. In general, though, truth has consequences. If Christianity is right, those who do not accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, there's tremendous consequences awaiting them. All right? People who choose to live lives of anger and bitterness contrary to what God says is true concerning these things and, and love, they're going to they're gonna bear the consequences of that. Sin. God says don't sin. Sin has consequences. Not believing in Jesus. Rebellion against God. These have consequences. If you have a math test and they ask you what's two plus two and you say three, that's going to have consequences. <laughs> But just to to know two plus two equals four out in the real world, not a test, but out in the real world, it could have consequences, especially when there's many zeros that follow that two, those twos and that four, right? Like what's two million plus two million? Three million. You could get gypped out of a million dollars. That has consequences. All right, so truth has consequences. For the most part, truth has consequences. And if we grab a hold of something that is untrue but believe it's true, that too may very well have consequences. How many of you read the chapter t- for today? Raise your hand. Okay, in this book right here. Yeah, and the preface of Cold Case Christianity, which I will not be discussing today, but I wanted you to read it anyway to give you an idea of what lies ahead for the, that that book. All right, so... In this, Sire, who wrote um, a book I had to personally read when I was a freshman in college called The Universe Next Door, um, and it's basically talking about um, theism, deism, naturalism, and nihilism. We're going to get to nihilism in a second. Um, but James Sire is interviewing a class. It's kind of a mock interview, and... He discusses why truth is important, but then he discusses how do we derive the truth? How do we come across the truth? How do we get from A to B? Ignorant of truth to knowing truth. How do we know truth? And how about parents? Are parents a source of truth? Come on, guys. Are parents a source of truth? Okay. 
So let's say most of the time we'll give them the benefit of the us the benefit of the doubt because I'm a parent. So most of the time we give truth, but there are times in which we can be wrong. So we're not we're not infallible. We can make mistakes. How about do we derive truth from our next door neighbor? Yep, same thing. How about culture? Could, does culture tell us truth? How many think Hollywood speaks the truth? <laughs> Like very seldom. So culture doesn't tell us the truth. Um, though I guess culture can tell us truth. Culture tells us right and wrong by the laws that we have. Don't murder someone. Okay, that's actually truth. I mean, they also tell us, though, that you can sing a song and everything will be better. Okay, all right, yeah. So we're talking about pop culture here. Yes, because that's in songs. All right, follow your heart. Thank you, Disney. Okay, yeah, just let it go. Oh, boy. Yeah, there's some instances in life in which you do not want to let it go. All right? Tell that guy who's holding the opposite end of the couch. Let it go. <laughs> okay. All right, so how about religion? Does religion tell us the truth? Okay, so maybe there is one religion that is right and all the others are wrong. Because we last week we discussed that all the religions can't be right. Now, it is logically possible that all of them have just some truth, but none of them have all the truth. That's a possibility. But we're going to have to discover this. And I'm going to make the claim that Christianity absolutely does have the truth and all the others have only parts of the truth. But you know what? When a salesman tells you only a part of the truth about a car, maybe not a good idea to buy it. So I don't want to I don't want to follow something that's only going to give me part of the truth and I'm not going to know the difference between whether it's all truth or whether what he's saying is truth or not. I need a I need something that's going to tell me what's true. All right. Now, that that that's where we're going here. Now, when he asks, um, but how, he asks, the class says, excuse me, we need proofs outside those so-called scriptures, because every religion has, a, has scriptures, at least for the most part, to help us discover which, if either, is true, which, which religion is true. We need to apply some method to discover evidences or proofs that will validate a religion or invalidate that religion. Okay, and so he, so the, okay, from which category would we derive such proofs? The students say, all we have left is the philosophical category. But how can someone's philosophy be a proof? Isn't that just someone's opinion? And so the students, these are really smart students. No, we don't mean philosophy in that sense of the word, but in the classic sense. And listen to this, this is what we mean by philosophy. In the sense of the word where philosophy means finding truth through logic, evidence, and science. Okay? Logic, evidence, and science. So we're going to use science, the scientific method and apply those to things that we observe to come up with evidence or proofs. Then we're going to need to use logic in order to discover then the truth of the matter, all right? Now, th that's fair enough. Someone tell me Immanuel Kant's philosophy in a nutshell. You're going to probably have to open your book to, to do this. I'm going to share, we're going to talk about them in reverse order in the book. They talked about David Hume, and then they talked about Immanuel Kant. We're going to do that in reverse today, because um, my personal opinion is David Hume's philosophy has infiltrated the uh, college classroom, and most people buy into that rather than Immanuel Kant's. What does Immanuel Kant say? Okay. Saxon. So basically his belief is that um, 
structures of your senses and your mind form all the sense data, so you never really know the thing in itself that you're trying to understand. Okay, what phrase did he use to talk about that? Right. It's a phrase, it's two words. Empirical verifiability. Yes. Big words. Empirical means that it's it follows a scientific method, okay? You put it under a microscope, you can test it, you can verify it, the scientific method, okay? Verifiability means that you use a scientific method to verify its truth. Now, here it here is what he is basically getting at, okay? Uh, excuse me. Let me let me back that up. I think I just switched those two around. Give me one second here. Okay, yes, that is David Hume's, because he was the empirical. Anyway, so scratch that right there. And that's why he had them in this order. But... I want to reverse them because of the importance of the two men. Yes. So let me say I have this box of Kleenexes. This there is there exists a box of Kleenexes, but how do we know that there is a box of Kleenexes that actually exists? Tell me how you know this. But how do you know that? You can what? Okay, right now you're only seeing it. Okay, so by seeing it, you are saying that there really is a box of tissues. And now she's feeling it. So we use our five senses in order to gain a perspective or observe this box. So there are two realities then, is what Kant says. There's the reality of the thing itself, and then there's the reality of our five senses. The question, though, is can we trust our five senses? Now, you don't have to know this for the test, but I want you to write this word down. It is the word nihilism. Nihilism. I'm pronouncing the H when I... N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. Nihilism says... You do not know that this exists because you cannot trust your five senses. There is nothing that tells me that I can trust my five senses. Actually, we may all be a dream. We may all be a dream. There may be no reality whatsoever. We may all be Saxon's dream. How do you know that we are not? Okay, and and so because we because I am told that I cannot verify the uh, the use of my senses to derive truth, but that has to be a basic. If you cannot trust your senses, then you can't trust that anything is real. That was my comment about nihilism. At the end there. That's not what nihilism believes. I am telling you, the problem with nihilism is you cannot know anything. That is the end goal of Immanuel Kant's philosophy, nihilism. Wait, That's where it goes. But then if you, if you look at it that way, then everyone can look at everything differently. Like Hosanna could see the um, speaker system as an ostrich as I see it as a speaker. Okay. So her truth is different than your truth. Where did we hear that before? Okay. But we I would call into question her ostrich because I don't see an ostrich and I trust my five senses. Can they be wrong? They have fooled me on occasion. Especially when I look at something quickly and I think it's one thing, but because I looked at it so quickly, I missed it and it really wasn't the thing I thought it was. You know, you ever see something out of the corner of your rear eye? Man, I saw, there was someone standing right over there. No, it was actually a cat. Oh. All right. So 
I'm going to say we have to be able to trust our five senses. That is my presupposition. If we cannot trust our five senses, then we cannot trust anything. And as Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. So that was his, his starting point was because I think, that means I exist. And if I exist, then therefore I am a reality. Well, I don't want to get too deeply into this. But Rene Descartes, that was his, um, that was where he stood. All right. Now, because Immanuel Kant, well, let me ask you this. Why do you know for sure that Immanuel Kant can't be right? Talked about it in the book. Why he can't be right. He used the roadrunner tactic. Tell me. Hello? You got it? Go for it. Uh, because uh, uh, how would uh, he, uh, he, he don't know that that's the truth if uh, what he sees or if, uh, thinks can uh, only be... Uh, Okay, let me say it for you. He's saying, Emmanuel Kant was saying, you can't know the truth. So is that a truth? If it's a truth, then how can you know that? Because you just told me you can't know the truth. So that is a self-defeating statement. You can't know the truth. Because Emmanuel Kant is saying that that's a truth. But if you can't know the truth, then he cannot know that what he said was true. So that's a self-defeating, that's what we call the roadrunner tactic. So Immanuel Kant's philosophy falls flat because of that. And so now I want to talk about David Hume. David Hume did not go as far as Immanuel Kant. What did David Hume say? And I've kind of already touched on it, but what did he say? That big phrase that you, I had you scribble out. Empirical verifiability. Okay, empirical verifiability. What does that mean? Aside, some, aside from something really complex. Sometimes, you know, you just, why couldn't philosophers just use really simple words? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, how do you get there, though? That's what he focused on. And that's this concept of empirical verifiability. He basically said um, logic and the scientific method. That's how we know anything. Then he said, if you're going to tell me that there is something out there that lies beyond what I can test scientifically that there is a boogeyman that lives in your closet, I can't test that. And it's not even worth the paper you write it on. Just burn it. I'm paraphrasing him. This then gets into this concept. Does truth lie outside that which we can test scientifically? Can you test God? Can you test to see if... God is there? Can you put him under the microscope? Can you see him? Can you observe him with any of your five senses? And the answer is no. God lies in what's called metaphysical reality or metaphysics. That comes from Aristotle. Metaphysics, um, I think I wrote this down. Yeah, metaphysics concerns the philosophy. I do want you to write this down. Metaphysics concerns the philosophy of two things. Are you ready? Concerns the philosophy of ultimate causes and the underlying nature of things that is beyond the physical realm. What started everything, what's underneath everything, what's beyond what I can feel, sense, observe, etc., and so metaphysics, and again, it comes from how Aristotle used this term, concerns the philosophy of ultimate causes and the underlying nature of things that would be beyond the physical realm. Here's, here's what I want to ask you. 
Let me find... Okay. Since our concern has... It starts with the existence of God, or if God doesn't exist. Theism versus atheism. The atheist, so David Hume would be an atheist, since you cannot observe God, since we cannot apply the scientific method to God, which I'm going to disagree with, by the way, but because we cannot apply the scientific method to God, he is metaphysical and therefore not knowable. So there is it's a waste of your time to try and discover if there's a God or not, because you can't do it. You can't put God under a microscope, so forget about it. It's worthless. Religion, therefore, is worthless. Except, of course, what he might say is morals, but I, don't, I, I, don't, I haven't read enough of David Hume to know where he stands on morals. I'm sure being an atheist, he basically said morals are opinion. Now, is this true? You, comment, question? Um, do you think you couldn't observe, observe God, like you said, put him under a microscope or okay. with your five senses? Couldn't you take another step and observe the existence of a God? Like, okay. Look around you. I mean, like, if it's most unlikely that we didn't evolve and just explode into existence, like, everything practically okay. has God's name written all over it. Okay. Very good. You're jumping ahead of me. That's where I'm going. So just give me a few more minutes and we'll get there. But that's good. That's good. So that's why I say I think we can use the scientific method to come to the conclusion there is a God. And not just that there is a God, but what he is like. Okay? Paul believed this because he said all men are without excuse. That creation screams the God's divine power and divine nature, his eternal power and divine nature, okay? And that we know this. In our heart of hearts, everyone knows that there is a God. Okay, even the atheist knows that there is a God, but he cannot accept it, okay? Now, and I'm going to say that the same thing with the agnostic. The agnostic cannot accept that there is a God. The weight of proof is so strongly in the camp of the theist, but the atheist can't accept it because he accepts David Hume's premise or supposition that our, the only thing that we know is true is what we can scientifically prove. All right, so we're going in that direction, but bear with me. How do we disprove David Hume's... Because David Hume said there's no such thing as miracles because that is supernatural. That is beyond nature. And if it's beyond nature, by definition, we cannot use the scientific method to test it. Okay? You say that you were healed. I say I can explain it by science. But because right now we don't have enough science to explain it, you can't use the God of the gaps argument. If we can't explain it by science, we're just going to say it's God. And so that that approach of the God of the gaps is something he would say, you Christians constantly appeal to the God of the gaps. But the more we learn about science, that gap gets closer and closer, and at some point in the future, there will be no gap at all. And I guess we'll know all things. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I disagree with David Hume, but why, why is David Hume wrong? Go for it, Laura. Okay, so we actually have an example in the book about that. How can you use the scientific method to prove the scientific method? No, you can't. See, that's a starting place. So it's a self-defeating statement to say that the only thing we can trust is the scientific method, or that is that which science can prove. But how do you prove that statement? You can't. How about this one? Can you test logic with the scientific method? Listen to this now. Logic is a starting place. Remember when he used the term first principles of logic? 
they were the law of contra- non-contradiction and the, what did he call it? The, it's either or. It's the, um, ah, I'm sorry. Yes, that's, that's how that one teacher put it, which is silly. It's the both and or either or. Um, but it's basically falls in, it's, it's the cousin to, uh, non, the, the law of non-contradiction. So, this might be, this might be a little bit more helpful. Number one, you can't test logic, by the way. Okay? Logic is just there. It is. You can't use a scientific method to prove it. What is a thought? Is a thought simply the product of chemical reactions in your brain? Is that all a thought is? We really don't have the complete answer on that, but you cannot test a thought. The only way you can test a thought is if you write it down and observe it, or if you speak it. But a thought that's unspoken or unwritten is in your mind. Do you see? I'm I'm trying to tell you there are things out there that you cannot use to prove with the scientific method, but you know that they're there. The, the concept of the mind versus the brain. In philosophy, they argue that back and forth. Um, how about the laws of physics? Let's start with the law of gravity. Now, careful with this. Can you test the law of gravity? It might not be a real fair question. The answer is you cannot test the law of gravity. You can test gravity. You can kind of test that law by repeating it over and over, but how do you know it's a law? This It is a principle that is, okay? And so when all atheists have to accept the conclusion that when this universe suddenly began, the laws of physics began as well. Are they physical? No, they're not. They just are. They are the nature of things. You see? Now we're really going to get into some mind-blowing ideas here. But God governs his entire universe with these laws. How they manifest themselves. The law of gravity manifests itself in gravity. We can test gravity, okay? But technically we can't test these laws. We can only, okay? They just are. How did they come about? Nobody, no atheist can explain that to you. They might say they're just eternal. Then you get into the concept of the eternal and infinity and blow your mind with that. So we're going to start, if we, if you think about this more, you're going to start coming up with more, I'll call them things, that you cannot test with the scientific method. But we just say they are. We know that they exist. They are outside of David Hume's empirical verifiability method, but he would say that they still exist. Okay? So again, we can find examples to demonstrate he's got to be wrong. All right. Um, can you test some... The idea then is, and I'm going to give you an example. How about photons? Does anybody know what a photon is? Okay. Has anyone ever heard of a graviton? I came across that term just in the last year and I thought, what? And apparently they, they now believe that there's not just photons in the universe, but there's gravitons and there's all of these other tons. And it's, do you see them? No. But we know they're there. Because we see, and this is what Peter, you brought up, we see their effects. Can you see a photon under a microscope? Can you test it? No, you can't. Then how do you know it's there? Because of its effects. Because of the footprints or fingerprints it leaves behind, if you will. Okay? That's how we know it's there. 
So we're going to need to see then the effects of God in our universe. So I'm going to suggest, see, when you start debating or talking with an atheist, he is going to hold to this idea that the only thing that exists is that which science can prove. You can't prove miracles, so miracles don't exist. Miracles falls into that God of the gaps argument that's archaic, it's superstitious, it's, you know, get rid of it because science can't explain it. At least, but one day it will, okay? That gap. Um, so, I just totally lost my train of thought here. Wow. Okay, so the atheist will argue, and, and it's in every university, every university that's not a Christian university, and in many Christian universities, unfortunately, but the only thing that we can use is the scientific method. Anything that you cannot directly test, it's not worth studying. But there's so much out there that we know it exists that doesn't fall inside that scientific method. And so we called it the metaphysical world. We could, I mean, even atheists have been baffled by near-death experiences. The near-death experience has to do with your soul. When you die, if you're, if all you are is a physical body and no more, you should not have thought processes. You should not be Life as you know it stops. Darkness. Lights out. You're done. Why do these, in many of these near-death experiences, do they say that they are, they feel as if they are rising above their body and they can actually see their body? We could probably explain that maybe through some synaptical responses in the brain and so on. Okay, as the body's dying, they haven't, boom, like that. Dreams. You can have a dream in seconds. But then it goes further, and they say, I began to rise above the building. And in one person's account, they say they saw a red shoe on the roof of the hospital, and then they saw a tunnel of light, and on they went into the tunnel of light. Well, this boy who died and was being, at, was being interviewed by the doctor of his experience, he didn't He'd never been on the roof. He'd never been on a helicopter above that roof. And so they went up to the roof. No lie, guys. They went up to the roof, and guess what they found? They found a red shoe. And the question and it is in the place where he said it was, how does that happen? Now, I'm just giving that as one example. There's many examples like this. There's no possible way for this person who died to have known who was in that room, where they were located, and what they were doing, and what they were saying. They were dead. And so there are many experiences, stories of this nature. And the atheist, and, and I, I like to listen to debates now and then between a Christian and an atheist. And when the Christian touches on this, the atheist... Um, Anthony Flew, one of the most well-known atheists in 2004, quit being an atheist. Part of it was the near-death experiences. The other part was the DNA that I'm going to touch on in a second here. But he just... He, he realized what I'm talking to you today, that there must be a metaphysical world that you cannot necessarily test under a microscope with the scientific method. But it's there. And is God a part of that? So part of what we're going to discuss in this class is, is there a God? And if he is, what is he like? And if he is the God that's out there and it matches the Bible, can we now start applying the scientific method to the Bible? And can we come to some conclusions? All right. I want you to imagine yourself walking along a beach. Okay, can you feel that? Can you feel the sand on your under your feet? You're close to the shore and the water comes up and goes over your feet and you just stand there and of course the sand goes out from under your feet and your toes and it feels super cool. But you keep walking along and suddenly you come across this huge heart 
in the beach, uh, uh, in the sand, and it says Alice and John with an arrow through the heart. Based on that, what kind of conclusions might you draw? But what if somebody made that up? What if it's not true? Somebody was having fun with their wife. Okay. Someone believes that. Or someone doesn't believe that, but knows Alice, who broke up with him, and he wants to get back at her and says, Alice likes John, and she doesn't, and now she... F- yeah, well, what so a world. Alice having fun making fun of Alice in that situation. Okay. Okay. What else can we derive from this? That there was a couple on the beach that wrote that down. Or at least one person. Okay. Wait a second. So a person, an intelligent person, did this? How do you know that? I mean, the waves don't make that kind of stuff. How do you, but how do you know that? Maybe this time they did. Because there's never been any experience where that actually happened. Whoa, really? Not even one example of that ever happening? Okay. Okay, so yes, there are holes, but I can't say that they're footprints. But I tell you what, they sure do look a little bit like footprints. It's just that the water's kind of washed them a bit. In fact, it's washed some of the heart out as well. But you see, we've discovered something. And in our our life experience, we have never encountered an ocean or an, even an animal, but we're, we're talking now non-animate objects doing this. So that's what I'm wanting to limit this. We would say there had to be some intelligent creature that did this. We could start saying not just intelligent, but it couldn't have been an animal because an animal doesn't know how to spell Alice and John. They had to have lived within our culture or know about our culture because that's a cultural symbol to do a heart with an arrow and two names in it, okay? There's actually a couple of conclusions that we can come to, but not necessarily that John and Alice did this or that Alice actually likes John and John likes Alice. So here, hold that thought. I want you to observe this picture right here. Okay. It is a very old. Do you see how young Jenny Rose is? She's probably like. She's probably eight years old. So I'm going to say, do you see that couch? I'm going to say that couch is so intricate. I'm going to observe that a human being actually made that couch. Because in my experience, No animal and no natural process has ever formed a couch like this. The walls that you see there actually created by a human being. Why? Because it has such design. I'm now going to conclude. Do you see the people in that picture? Random chance. You laugh. Why do you laugh? Tell me. Okay. Okay. So you're saying I'm contradicting myself? Yeah, you're Thank you. Okay, yes, I am. Road runner? Road runner? Okay. Um, I might be able to come up with a statement so that the road runner would attack, would, would, I, but I would be able to use logic anyway. And show that my logic contradicts itself. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? Say that one more time. Okay. So not random chance, but they've just always been around. They just were. Okay. Okay. Well, by using the sign, I mean, some people have actually said silly things like that. 
Um, because the question is, if the Big Bang exploded and we're in the process of expanding, we cannot say that matter has been around forever. It had to have had a starting point, okay? And you can go backwards. If you're finding out how quickly it's expanding, you can extrapolate that inward and find out when everything started, okay? If you can know how fast it's traveling from something, you can extrapolate back to the starting point. But that would make the universe finite and matter finite, and many atheists do not like that idea because that means that something had to, at some point in time, come from nothing, and they don't have an answer for that. So they just say, nope, the, the universe constantly does this. It's in constant flux. It implodes, and then it explodes again, takes billions and billions of years, and then it starts contracting. The only problem is we have never seen that contracting take place. All right? And so it's guess, and it lies outside the scientific method, and yet many scientists hold to that. So why I brought that up, I'm not sure. Many scientists come to very unscientific conclusions. Another way to say, how do you explain random chance? I mean, it's like 1 to the 10 to the 257th power, which is a 1 with 257 zeros after it. 1 in that many chance. And that's just beyond probability. And probability scientists would say it's improbable. It is actually impossible. To my knowledge, anything 1 to the 10 to the 50th, they just say, let's just consider that impossible. And there's many things like that within the concept of evolution. Something coming from nothing, etc. Life coming from non-life. But they still believe it. Now, um, one of their examples that if, if they don't say the earth is, the, the universe is expanding and contracting constantly, another way they get around it is this concept of a multiverse. All right. You see it in Flash and many other TV shows. There's, there's an infinite number of universes. So if there's an infinite number of universes, that ha then you have an infinite number of chances, and 1 times 10 to the 257th is now possible. Did you understand what I just said? Because all you need is 10, or, or uh, 10 to the 257th planets or universes in order for it to happen. Okay? Because it's one chance. Let's say it's one chance out of 10. But if you have 10 universes, it's, it's in one of those 10, it, it's probably going to happen, right? Because now you have 10 universes. So if you have an infinite number of universes, suddenly anything is possible. Yeah. That is science fiction for adults. Okay. Uh, I would say no, because I could say with a die, I'm going to roll a seven. No, <laughs> that would be impossible. Okay, that would be a miracle if I rolled a seven with one die. I'm going to roll a six, and I roll it, and it's a six. Wow, that was a random chance, but was that a miracle? No. Okay. Okay. And maybe if I just roll every time I rolled it, I, I guessed, and then I rolled, and I was always right. Okay, maybe that is a miracle. All right, now, um, I wanted to go somewhere with that example. DNA. So what is the difference between something being valid and something being true? Something being valid and something being true. Do you remember the premise, reason. premise, conclusion? Actually, what I'm going to—I'm using the term "valid" as it's used in logic. All right. So, if premise A—if I give premise A and premise B, because maybe your car didn't break down, my car broke down, um, 
It took me 20 minutes to walk here, therefore I was late. Okay, that's that's valid. But it's not true because my car really didn't break down. Or it could maybe it's not true because it took it took me it could have taken me only 5 minutes to walk here. There you go. So I had to feed my ice cream addiction. Now, so valid means that the conclusion follows from the premise. But that doesn't necessarily mean the premises are true. Okay? So in logic, your premises have to be true, empirical method, and the conclusion has to follow from the premises. Okay? That makes it valid. Yes, exactly. All right. Now let's apply this to this statement. DNA, we call it the DNA code. They have actually, and I'm going to prove that this first premise is true. And my first premise, and I want you to write this down, is DNA is a language. I'm going to say that this is true because linguists, and I'm, I, I cannot remember the name or what the, the five characteristics of a language are, but I remember reading an article, it was some years ago, and I don't have it with me. But this linguist said, all languages possess five qualities, five basic qualities. They all do. And it sets it apart from anything else. DNA, the language of DNA, or the DNA code, possesses all five of those. The conclusion is that DNA is a a language. Okay? So here's my first premise. DNA is a language. My second premise is all known languages are derived from an intelligent source. All known languages are derived from an intelligent source. So within my experience, I know of no languages that have not come from a non-intelligent source. The ocean could not have produced John plus Alice because in my life experience and every person that I am aware of in this world that has ever spoken, written a book, made none, none of them have said that the ocean has ever produced John plus Alice or something intelligible like that engraved in the sand. So based on that observation, I know that there is a human being who knows English that wrote John plus Alice, all right? Or at least knows the word John plus Alice. So my first premise is DNA is a language. My second premise is all known languages are derived from an intelligent source. And here's my logical conclusion. DNA is derived from an intelligent source. I want you to write that down. So that's that's statement number three. That's my conclusion. You can, when you're doing those things, you can put those three dots. Looks like a triangle. Um, therefore, therefore, DNA is derived from an intelligent source. There's a lot that can actually be said about DNA. And when that well-known atheist, Anthony Flew, studied genetics, as he did. Now, he, he was not a geneticist, but he was an atheist studying it. He realized there had to be a God. He would totally agree with what I just said here. And this is actually what led him. I'm not sure before he died if he ever became a Christian. But um, So we are going to realize that as we go through this class, as we use cold case Christianity detective principles, we are going to use our five senses. We're going to use them in the process in this process called the scientific method. We are going to make observations in order to to glean evidence in our case. Here is what everyone in this world, um, how can I say, I don't want to call it a problem. This is what we all face. We will interpret the data. And we will interpret that data based on our worldview, the box top. And we all have a box top. And we're all in the process of putting that puzzle together. 
Now, my box top is the Bible. That's what I go with. That's my worldview. That's my starting place. Science can never be my starting place. I want you to think about that. Because that's what the world tells us. No, 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 don't start with the Bible. That's a bias. Well, guess what? You have a bias too. No, I don't. I'm completely objective. Really? So if I gave you a hundred evidences for the proof of God and you can give me only one, tell me, are you going to become a theist? Probably not. They have a bias. Um, It's not that simple, but... Okay, so we are going to use these principles. Our goal is to come to truth using logic, science, and evidence. For the evidence to be true, though, we will always have to interpret it, and we will need to come to a conclusion. All right? So, we're going to be as fair as we can. And next time, I am going to need you to read chapters 1 and 2 of Cold Case Christianity. There's probably about eight chapters. As we go through them, we're going to get some of these tools. I think you're going to enjoy this book, Cold Case Christianity. Again, do yourself a favor and underline, underline, highlight those things that are important as you read through the book. Any questions about what we talked about today? Today, I tell you what, today was tough. Uh, your teacher actually had some difficulties, huh? But uh, Emmanuel Kant, David Hume, um, of those two, I would say David Hume prevails with the scientific method that that is the only way to derive truth. There's no such thing as the metaphysical reality. We're going to challenge that. We're going to come to a very different conclusion, I think. So let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you that there is a truth and that truth has consequences. And when we follow the truth, which only comes from you, Jesus, you said you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by you. So Father, reveal your truth to us. Give us the tools that we need to discover who you are and the beauty of who you are. And Lord, I pray with great humility and love you would equip us to be able to share this with our skeptic friends so that they might see Jesus and that they would be able to trust the Gospels, trust your word, and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, that is our heart. Equip us to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.